What would you say is the problem with the church today? This is a, you know, I, I mistakenly last night just sort of Googled that question. There are a lot of theories. A lot of theories. Uh, some say it's the culture's fault, right? We've just become too secular and the church is crumbling in its wake. Some say it's a crisis of leadership. Some say it's the sexual abuse scandals. Some say the church is too political. Some say the church isn't political enough. What would you say? I, um, yeah, there was another one. The millennials don't like to commit to anything, right? Hey, all these things are true, right? Just, I'm not sure if that's the problem. I happen to be reading uh, devotionally some sermons by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from the last century, and he often goes back to what he thinks is the problem. And he puts it as saying, he doesn't think we realize the privilege of being a Christian. It's that. It's that simple. And I really resonate with that. And, and actually, um, ever since I converted in college, I've really been drawn to existentialists that get to the, the ultimate purpose and meaning of life. Even that Thoreau quote that gets thrown around a lot, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. I've been drawn to quotes like that. Because I think that that is a huge part of the problem. If not for all of humanity, the church as well. Just quiet desperation, resigned to life. It's funny, though, when I think about that quote, there was some commercial I noticed a few years ago that put that quote in their commercial and then, of course, proposed the solution to a life of quiet desperation was like buying Coca-Cola or buying a Ford. I forget which company used it, but it doesn't matter. They all do that, right? What a crazy world to live in that... We are flooded with images and ideas and these opinions that to fix the deepest need and sense of meaninglessness is going to come through buying something. That's why I appreciate just the goofy commercials. At least they know their place. It's not this dramatic, patriotic, you know, troops coming back from war, drink Budweiser. That's just, it's just too much. It's, it's supposed to be a distraction, those things, right? Enjoy your football, enjoy your beer. But they should be distractions from the main thing. What is the main thing in your life? For Lloyd-Jones, it's the privilege of being a Christian. And reading this passage and, and thinking about it and meditating on it this week, it was reminded by Lloyd-Jones' point because right there in verse 2, right where it starts, part of the insufficiency of the Old Testament is what? It doesn't make us perfect. That's the problem. Did you ever think that that was on the table? That you are going to be made perfect? 
We make lots of excuses about why we're not, you know, better people, better Christians or whatever. We're just human. Of course we sin. Those excuses are not in Scripture. Now we're going to see, this doesn't mean that we are supposed to be perfectly obedient. That's not the point. But I wonder if we are even able, myself included, even able to read this passage, let alone hear a sermon on it and understand it. Because what this passage is saying is that the privilege of being a Christian means you have been perfected. Last, last time I preached in, in uh, Hebrews 9, we tried to think of what Jesus has done. The fact that he has come changed reality itself. It changed even the way we count our years, right? It's year 2019 because Jesus came. Well, today I want to think about not just that he changed reality itself, but has also perfected all those who call upon his name. Hopefully you think, what could that mean? Because that's what I think. Let's pray. God, we do praise you for this day. We praise you that you have showed us already your goodness your majesty in creation, the goodness of your gospel, Lord, in the face of our sin. And we ask simply to give us open hearts and open minds to hear this word. To hear you speak to us, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we could get a glimpse of what this writer is trying to tell the church, what it could mean to appreciate the privilege of being a Christian, what it could mean to be told we've been perfected. Lord, humble us that we could receive the good news, comfort us, challenge our stubbornness and our hard-heartedness. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've actually come to what is really the, the end of the main argument in the book of Hebrews. And after this, there's going to be lots of different uh, exhortations. It's like one big therefore after this passage. Therefore, do this, 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 and this. And it's really striking that the way he ends it is saying, you have been perfected. And so first, I want to look at what does he mean by you have been perfectly, or the work has been perfectly finished. So that is a theme In this passage, we see again, like we saw in chapter 9, that the final offering has been made for sin. Jesus' work is complete in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices, right? Old Testament priests had to offer the offerings repeatedly. They had to stand, do their thing with the rituals and all of the blood of the temple. But Jesus has come to do it once for all. And in chapter 9 we saw not only is it once for all, it's once for all at the end of the ages or at the culmination of the ages or at the climax of the ages. What he has done has brought the ages to its climax, having once for all offered his body as a sacrifice for sin. Once for all. He has done it. Our uh, writer is quoting Psalm 40, 
to discuss what Jesus has come to do, not just to offer sacrifices and offerings like the Old Testament, but to do the Father's will. And when he quotes Psalm 40, he says, this is Jesus speaking, which is interesting, right? Psalms come, you know, about a thousand years before Jesus is born. But he's saying, the son of David that they were hoping for all these years has finally come in Jesus. He has fulfilled the whole point of King David. And it's Jesus saying, you didn't just want the bulls and goats. You wanted something more. The bulls and goats were God's idea, but over and over you see in the prophets a criticism of them because they had just become superstitious. They had just become like a rabbit's foot that you rub and think you're good. And so the criticism is not the sacrifices themselves, it's the fact that they became so superstitious as to not have any impact on the person's life, the community's life, and that they had to be done over and over, repeatedly, in order to show forth Israel, God's people, and who God is. But now, it no longer has to be done repeatedly. And by that will, he says, in verse 10, God, Jesus has come to satisfy that will by offering himself. Did you notice the contrast between the priests of the Old Testament are always standing? And what is Jesus doing? He's seated. He is now seated. We have a seated Savior. And seated, when it comes to God or Jesus, almost every time means he's on his throne. He has done the work. And this is actually how Hebrews starts. The book of Hebrews starts by talking about the ascension. The exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of God's glory, the Son, has come. He has made purification for sins and is seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's completed his work. He's perfectly completed it. Man. To me, that, that really should make us humbly confident. Because it, it makes us humble because the work that we get to partake in is not our own. We point to another. So it doesn't make sense to be self-righteous as a Christian. It's an oxymoron because literally what you boast in is not what you've done. But so confident because the Savior is done. He is seated. He has finished his work once for all. What does he say in the Gospel of John? On the cross right before he dies, he says this same exact word, it is finished. It's the same word we have in Hebrews. It is finished, or it is completed, or it is perfected. And in the Gospel of John, you can kind of trace, because there are controversies about the Sabbath, and the religious leaders are criticizing Jesus for doing certain types of work on the Sabbath. And he says, you guys don't get it. Yeah, I'm still working. My father is working because he's not resting yet until the cross. That's then when he says, I can rest. It is finished. It is 
done. So we don't have to worry about the future. It's that basic. And this is something that Jesus himself says too, right? Don't worry about the clothes you're going to have to wear and the food and the houses. It's such a basic thing, but do you see how it connects precisely to what Jesus has done? And I realize that in a culture like this that is so achiever mindset driven, it feels like all we ever do is think about the future, doesn't it? Especially when you're a kid, you're in school, and you're like always thinking about the grade you're going to get in the future and the test that's going to come, and then if you're going to graduate, and then if you're going to get into college, and then if you're going to get into med school, and then if you're going to get into another school, and what job are you going to get, and where are you going to live? It's all on the future. And, but it's, of course, not limited to children. It's all of us. But the fundamental premise of Christianity is that the most important work to be done with regards to our salvation is finished. And the only thing that can compare to that is going to be the second coming when he makes it, not just by faith, but by sight. The only thing that can compare to that. And that's also why, I don't know if you ever thought about it like this, but sex that I meant to say sex, sects, S-E-C-T-S, okay? Talking about, like, versions. Sex like Mormonism and, and other things that came out that require this additional revelation on top of what Jesus has done. They don't, it's like misses the basic point of saying what could compare to Jesus' work on the cross. There's nothing left that needs to be done. He's just waiting. And there's a quote again of Psalm 110. This is throughout Hebrews, throughout the New Testament. Psalm 110. Jesus is the King, the Lord, and he is now waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. There's nothing left for him to do, and so he's waiting as we hope to repent and respond to what he's done so that he can bring heaven Holy to earth. It is finished. So, that's about the future. What about the past? Well, the specific work that we're told, the second point I want to look at is not just perfectly finished, perfectly forgiven. Perfectly forgiven. Completely forgiven. Forgiven to the end. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple because Jesus offered his own body. The offering that he brought was perfect. We're told in chapter 9 that it is without blemish. Consider, though, the opposite. I mean, can you imagine... What would happen if we had to deal with our own sin? Either through the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices, we would have to bring these animals and goats to be brought to the priests over and over and over. Or, 
outside of the Old Testament, if we just had to deal with our own sin on our own, we don't appreciate how devastating that would be. We don't appreciate that if we're going to be if we're going to be really serious about justice, what are we going to do about the past? How are we ever going to get justice? I mean, it just reminds me of, of certain tragedies that you hear about, right? A, a couple loses a child, and then they, they start a foundation, and then sometimes in the media it gets portrayed as like, yeah, this is so that this, our kid's death won't be in vain, something like that which is great, but that's fine, that can be good. That is not equal. It's not like they're good now. It's not as if that's real justice. Or if someone is murdered and the murderer gets put in, that's not perfect justice. When can we actually get that? If we were to really take our sin seriously. It also makes works righteousness, this idea that we can do enough good to outweigh our bad. That's ridiculous on one level. Because how are you ever going to make up for cosmic treason? Rebellion against the very author of your life. You can't make up for that. And so, works righteousness will always bring God down to our level or try to bring us up. It's laughable. And it doesn't take the past very seriously. But, in Jesus, the promise of Jeremiah 33, which is quoted again in our Hebrews passage, the promise of the new covenant has come. This promise that the prophet Isaiah gave to Israel in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem 500 years before Jesus, we are told is now a reality. Such that you have been, if you are in Christ, you have been completely forgiven. And so we can stop worrying about the future, and then there's even an important sense in which we can stop worrying about the past. I'm going to explain that. I'm going to qualify it a little bit, but it's important to hear that also by itself. Because any sin that you feel like is still burdening you, any sin that you still walk around with like a shadow, if you are in Christ, that burden has been taken. It no longer defines you. You have been cleansed and forgiven. And so the first response is to sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I love hearing Kanye's gospel choir just sing hallelujah over and over and over. Because it's so beautiful, and it's such a proper response. And what I mean by we don't have to worry about the past, it also means, it doesn't mean we ignore it. It means we actually have freedom to face it, because it's no longer a threat. You see that? 
It doesn't mean, oh no, I'm, I'm forgiven, so don't make me do anything about what I've done. No, it's not that. That's cheap grace. That's not realizing what it costs Jesus to forgive you. It's saying, you're right, I did that. It no longer defines me. It no longer actually separates me from God because I've been forgiven. And so I can face it and try to repair, give reparations back to what I've done. That's repentance because you see it for what it is. And if you don't have forgiveness first, you're not going to want to do that. That's frightening if you don't have forgiveness. Because then you're working on some sort of system where you're going to have to outweigh it. But if it's already been forgiven, you can look at it. You can look at it as something that's separate from you. If you're not in Christ, if you don't know this forgiveness... You are, whether you realize it or not, you are living under an unbearable burden. What is to prevent you from giving your past sins to Jesus? You can't carry them. You're going to have to just keep faking it. Keep acting like they're not that bad, not that serious. You do other good things to outweigh them but it's not real. It's not real when it comes to human-to-human interaction, let alone human-to-God interaction. You're not going to be able to live up to any sort of real standard of justice. A related point in this passage, and and honestly, in my notes, I have point three slash point two B, so do with it what you want, but it's not just that he's perfectly forgiven, the person who is in Christ. He also says perfectly cleansed. And what he means by that is something more than just being washed clean. It seems like. And this to me is, is pretty amazing, but I'm not quite sure I fully understand what he's after. So verse 2 says, otherwise, talking about the Old Testament sacrifices, they would not have, they, what? otherwise, would they not? It's a question. Got it. Okay. Verse 2. Everyone... Back? Okay, I'm back. Okay. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? What? We're not supposed to have any more consciousness of it? Is that what he's saying? What does he mean by that? The word consciousness is... is It's kind of like reminder. The word could just as well as translated as reminder. We wouldn't have any more reminders of it. Because if they're not having repeated, you know, if you don't have to bring a bull or a goat to be sacrificed every day, you're not reminded over and over of your sin. What is he talking about? So later in the book of Hebrews, and this is just obvious to our experience and to the New Testament, Christians struggle with sin. It's not like we don't forget about it. Right? We probably, if anything, don't think about it enough. But Hebrews is concerned about drawing near to God. Hebrews is concerned about worship, most fundamentally. And it seems like when it comes to worship, we no longer have to have consciousness of sin, meaning 
Meaning, know that. Know that you no longer are separated from God because of your sin, because of Christ. Verse 17, and this helps me understand what he's after. Verse 17 is quoting that new covenant promise. And we are told that God himself will no longer remember our sins. The one who knows all things, was there when you sinned, know why you sinned, was grieved by it, the one who knows everything perfectly, we are told, will remember our sins no more. What does that mean? Well, it reminded me of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about a day of judgment, and he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the flip side of what he's saying here. That apparently, we are either going to be forgiven in love to such an extent that God looks at us as if he can't even remember our sins, so that our identity has been so fully separated from our sin that he just sees us as the perfect image of God remade in Christ. Or, he sees you as your sin has totally identified you. Your sin has become who you are. It seems like those are the two options in Scripture. So when Jesus says in the Day of Judgment, I never knew you, he's saying your sin has wiped you out of God's mind. Depart from me. And that's a picture of hell, right? And so in our passage, we are told that forgiveness, and this is why it's, it's 2B or 3, Forgiveness is so complete that we have been cleansed from even our own consciousness of it. We've been separated so much from it that we can come to God righteous, standing on the basis of the offering of Jesus' body and say, listen to me, God, like you listen to Jesus. Treat me like you treat Jesus. That's hard to understand. That's something that is hard, especially for our culture and our world to appreciate because we don't want to separate out parts of us. We think either you affirm us totally or you're judging us. And so, we can't understand a type of love that says, I will love you so much 
I am jealous for you, God says, so badly that even in the face of your rebellion and running away from me, even in the face of the things that I know will destroy you and offend me, I will still love you. But we don't understand that type of love. And it seems like we only want to love people who we don't have any disagreements with. And that's so easy. You don't need Jesus or God to love someone that you agree with and think everything they do is fine anyway. But it's also not reality. It's also not actually knowing a person. Because you've never met someone that you should think that way about. Because every person is mired in sin. And so God looks at us in that way. The sin is no longer a threat to God's love. Not because we're looking past it, not because we're denying it, pretending it's not there, but because of the perfect offering of the body of Jesus. God will remember your sins no more. Man, that is such good news. Do you realize, have you ever been confronted with the heinousness of your own sin? And then realized, God is act, His love is so big, it's as if you didn't sin. As if. Because Jesus took that punishment. But his love is so overwhelming. His forgiveness is so complete and perfect. It's as if. Dang. And that's the picture we're given of marriage. Christ and the church supposed to point us to that. Of the church, the way we relate to each other, the communion of saints. That's the love we're called to have. So then finally I want to look at Perfectly sanctified. This too is a little bizarre, I think, um, just in the language. But we've looked at the work is perfectly finished or complete. We are perfectly forgiven and even perfectly cleansed or perfectly wiped clean of a guilty conscience. That's how he puts it elsewhere. And then finally, we are perfectly sanctified. Usually we think of being sanctified as a process, sanctified. We are justified once for all as a work, as an act of God's free grace. We are sanctified throughout the rest of our life. We're becoming more and more holy. Normally, that's what we think about. But in this passage, and then there are some others, 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, uses sanctified in the past tense. As Paul actually addresses the book of 1 Corinthians to those in Corinth who have been sanctified or who are sanctified. So what does this mean? Well, I think, one, it does have to do, again, with the source of the perfection, the offering. Let me remind you of Leviticus 22, the Old Testament passage I had paired with it. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. 
And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There should be no blemish in it. And I had mercy on you and didn't have you read all of the possible blemishes in animals. And there are a lot. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Let's sit with that passage for a minute. God says he's the one who sanctifies us, but he also says he's the one being sanctified among them. And so that helps us also realize that word sanctified can also simply just mean set apart, exalted, preserved for holy work. So God is meant to be sanctified through these offerings. In Ezekiel, he talks about manifesting his holiness to the nations through Israel. That's what's supposed to be happening. It's it's as if when the people of Israel are gathered, God's name itself is being proclaimed as holy, set apart from the world. And remember that, maybe not remember, you may not realize this, but sacrifices in the Old Testament were God's idea. So even though there are criticisms of it, it was God's idea because it's God's gracious provision for our forgiveness. They only become criticized when they get abused. And then we see what they actually point to, which is Christ's forgiveness. But this is not humans trying to appease some kind of wrathful God. Hey, I bet he'd like us to kill a bunch of bulls. That will give him pleasure. It's not that. That's other religions, pagan religions, can give that depiction. They're trying to convince God to forgive them. It's not a convincing, a stubborn God. It's God's idea. We need to see just how bloody and horrible our sin is. He allows us then to draw near and worship God because of the offerings. And so the offerings were God's idea, but then we are perfectly sanctified because the offering of the body of Jesus is perfect. God is perfect. The offering that he offers in our place is perfect. Therefore, we are perfectly set apart for God. And to think of the offering being perfect, um, we belong to the YMCA, and the membership has not been once for all offered, the membership fee. The membership fee continuously has to be offered to them, as I'm reminded, once a month. But the offering that we have placed through faith by Jesus has been offered to God once for all. Which means our membership in the real YMCA, the real Christian association, if you will, has been once for all accomplished. So we are then set apart into that once for all. 
So it's perfect because of its source. It's perfect because of its end. The sanctification will be perfect. And it's so obvious that it's going to be perfect that he can talk about it as if it's already happened. It's almost like, it's almost like the odds are so greatly in our favor, um, you know, like odds of a sports game. It's like the Patriots playing the Yale Bulldogs in football. It's so obvious who's going to win. It's so obvious where the odds are. We can talk as if the Patriots already won. Do you realize that that's how God considers you? That's how completely sanctified you are? Romans 8 even says we've been glorified. Past tense. One commentator puts it this way. We are being transformed into what we have made. Sorry. We are being transformed into what we have been made. We are to be what we are in Christ. This is not unlike, you know, talking, talking to my kids saying, I will not help you put on your shoes. You are an eight-year-old. You can put on your shoes as an eight-year-old. That's part of what an eight-year-old is. Someone who can put their shoes on themselves. Who are you in Christ? You are someone set apart, sanctified. So acts like it. This is the opposite, again, of works righteousness. It is not work, 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 then receive. It is receive and then work. It is uniquely about the historical work of God in Christ. Every other religion, every other philosophy, it doesn't really matter who it comes from because it's just pointing to some practice that you have to do, something that needs to be done by you. Could have come through Muhammad or Buddha or something that is talking about do this. But in this case, because it starts with receive the benefits of the gospel and what God has done. And then in verse 14, we're told by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's where you get the progress that is being made. Of those who have already been perfected for all time, this is the process you will complete. The process of having the law written on our hearts. The process of becoming more and more obedient to God. This new covenant process. And so, let me just ask a couple questions for you. One is, have you been set apart? By Christ. Have you been set apart? Or are you, like the masses of humanity, living a life of quiet desperation? Living a life where you're just getting tossed to and fro by whatever the culture happens to lead you into. In that way, you're not set apart. In that way, you are being made more and more into your sin. You do not have the privilege of being a child of God. And it is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. 
but it comes only in Christ. Have you been set apart in that way? To actually lead a life that will matter. Because everything else will be forgotten. How do we do this? How do we avoid leading a life of quiet desperation? Well, dwell on your privilege. Dwell on your privilege. Dwell on your perfection. Read these verses over and over. Use the means of grace. Don't make it more complicated. The word, prayer, and church. We are being sanctified. How in the world can we be resigned to a life of quiet desperation when we are sharing in Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? How in the world can we be intimidated by what other people may say or think about us? How can we be worried about the past or the future when you have been perfected in Christ? Don't all those things now seem so small and foolish? They are like trying to reconstruct the temple and going back to the bulls and the goats. Dwell on your privilege. This doesn't mean we all have to become missionaries to the developing world. But it does mean that we all have to become missionaries. Because what other, what other conclusion is there? You're a representative of the king of heaven. And you're not going to tell anyone about it? You're going to keep it a secret? Because you're afraid that these little troops on earth might hurt you? Not going to take a risk on behalf of the one who has already perfected you. Let's dwell on our privilege. Let's pray. God, we pray that your spirit would be mighty, that you would give those who are among us who don't know you, Lord, that privilege of becoming a child of God, becoming loved by you, separated out from their sin. And Lord, show us the wonders of being perfected in Christ, that you would continue to work all things for our good and towards your glory, for your glory is great and majestic. Make us more and more in awe of it and in awe of the fact that not only do we have this privilege, but we can actually give you glory, bring you glory, the one who made all things, the one who is remaking all things, and who promises to be with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.